0: This is Fortress on a Hill. Thank you for joining us. I'm Henry.
1: And I'm Danny. We're here to tear apart recent stories about our nation's armed forces and our veterans.
0: We hope you'll take a critical look at what's happening with our military. And we hope you enjoy the show.
1: Now, let's get started. Okay, so moving on, uh, this is a brief article I want to talk about. It's called A Requiem for Vietnam. It's, uh, it's from the American Conservative, and it's posted by Andrew Bacevich. Uh, I had the pleasure of meeting uh, Colonel Retired Bacevich uh, just this week. On uh, this, this past Monday, March 5th, I was uh, on a conference with him. He was the uh, chair of the panel, and he asked questions, and we were basically doing a retrospective on the war on terror. and There were four veterans on the panel. Uh, all of which are also authors and, uh, or work for think tanks or teach. And, and we just discussed the problems with the war on terror or what used to be called the war on terror. Before I went to the conference, though, I printed out this article on Vietnam at basewitch Now, which is a 1969 grad of West Point, served with uh, armored cavalry units in 1970 to 71 in Vietnam. What's interesting about him is that he has been a critic of the war in Iraq and Afghanistan since the outset of those wars. Uh, that is rare for a military veteran, especially uh, of his era. He's been remarkably consistent on that. And then his own son was killed in Iraq in 2007. And he received hate mail from people who said that in some ways he was complicit in his son's death because he was anti-war. It's a guy who's been through a lot. Uh, I will say that his his personality is remarkably warm and humble. And uh, he's just a great guy to know. I was really thankful to know him. But this article looks back at his war, looks back at Vietnam. But he's always looking forward. And so what he did here is he looked at a June 1975 issue of the New York Review of Books. And, and they did like a symposium called A Requiem for Vietnam, where they got like the brightest philosophers and politicians and, and novelists from the era to, to, to say a little something about what they thought the Vietnam War meant. This is two months after Saigon fell, two months after the war was finally lost by the United States. And Beysvich knows what he's doing because the quotes he picked to highlight could just as easily apply to the war in Iraq or the war in Afghanistan. I'm just going to read you a few and I'm going to tell you what I think. Beysvich starts out by saying that the essays are in this symposium were interesting back in 1975, and he says they could serve as a stand-in for a similar symposium, which we might call the meaning of Iraq and Afghanistan, and he thinks that's unlikely to see the light of day anytime soon. Now, I think we did something similar on Monday for Harper's Magazine. Check out the June edition, and, uh, and you'll see the transcript, uh, some of which is brilliant words from yours truly. <laughs> probably, <laughs> probably not. But let's take a look at just four of the quotes from journalists, historians, authors, scholars— about the Vietnam War and ask ourselves if the same quote couldn't apply to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan as we look at those in a retrospective. Gary Wills was a journalist and a historian back in the 1970s and he said, because we concentrate on ourselves, the result of Vietnam will probably be that we will have to search for some new place to prove our toughness. That's interesting to me. We lose a war in Vietnam instead of it making us more humble, more careful about intervention in foreign societies. Gary Wills thinks, in fact, we're going to go around the world looking for places to prove that we are tough. I think that's been the case in Iraq and Afghanistan as well. Quite frankly, those wars have been rather indecisive. They uh, they haven't turned out the way we hoped, and yet we've gone even further afield into North Africa, into other parts of the Middle East, trying to prove that we are still the greatest military in the world, which we are, and that we can defeat terrorism. Rather than having a more humble approach, which would be appropriate, in my opinion, we look to expand our wars. Susan Sontag, who was a social critic, pretty famous at the time, she said, we, in quotes, in the anti-war movement, this is the Vietnam anti-war movement, affected public opinion, but we weren't able to affect the use of power or damage the spectacular consensus for continuing a surrogate war without American deaths. I wish there was an anti-war movement that was as strong as it was in Vietnam. But what she's saying is even that anti-war movement, of which we have nothing similar today because there's no longer a draft. She says, we couldn't really stop the war. You know, we affected public opinion, but we we couldn't really stop what remained an electoral consensus for war. And I would argue that's true today, that even if we did have an anti-war movement, which I wish we did, Democrats and Republicans essentially agree on one thing, which is they have to be tough on foreign policy. And a surprising amount of Americans and a surprising amount of their representatives and senators continue to vote for illegal foreign wars without updating the authorizations for military force or actually declaring war. Chuck Schumer is the minority leader in the Senate. He's a Democrat. Trump would have you believe he's such a liberal. Guess what, guys? He voted for the Iraq war. Mitch McConnell, the evil hard right villain of left wing feelings, well, he voted for the war too. So where's the political party that's anti-war? The mainstream leaders of both parties were in favor of the Iraq war and in favor of continuing indefinite war on our current authorizations. Christopher Lash, who was an historian and social critic, he said back in 1975 that on the one hand, American policymakers exaggerated their own capacity to control events While on the other hand, they worried excessively about the American image abroad, as they themselves were not quite sure if they were as tough and big as they pretended to be. And this gets back to insecurity. Insecurity is like the original sin of all men and women, but uh, specifically in a culture of masculinity, there's an enormous amount of insecurity. I truly believe that human nature is reflected in government activities in foreign policy abroad. In some sense, the government or the military or the policymakers at the top really are just a reflection of the flaws in human nature. Too often we bomb places or we send troops places because we're actually insecure about how powerful we are or aren't because we actually doubt our ability to change societies with our military. We feel like we have to prove something abroad. The war on terror, in one sense, has been one big campaign of revenge. Problem is, we haven't gotten revenge against the people who actually perpetrated 9-11. 15 Saudis perpetrated 9-11 out of 19 total hijackers. We didn't bomb Riyadh. We bombed Baghdad, where there were zero hijackers. I would argue we've created probably 10 times as many terrorists as we've killed. I want to end on this final one. George Kennan, diplomat and historian, he wrote in 1975 that the lessons of Vietnam are plain and few, not to be hypnotized by the word communism and not to mess in other people's civil wars where there is no substantial American strategic interest at stake. Here's what I want you to do, folks. I want you to take that word communism and I want you to insert terrorism. And let's read it again. The lessons of, instead of Vietnam, we're going to say the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan are few and plain. Not to be hypnotized by the word terrorism and not to mess in other people's civil wars. If I was going to write my requiem for the war on terror, it would be that. You can't call everything you don't like terrorism in order to give yourself an excuse to invade that country or bomb that country. And one should be very, very careful about getting involved in other people's civil wars. It rarely turns out well. And here's a quick prediction. And if I'm wrong, guys, email me. If I'm wrong, (laughs) troll me on Twitter and in the comments section of my articles. Don't worry. You'll be in good company. I'm attacked regularly. And tell me I'm wrong. But here's a prediction. Every one of the civil wars that we are currently involved in in the Middle East, Syria, and Yemen, are the two that stand out most, neither of those is going to turn out in a positive way for American interests. And neither of those civil wars is going to make us any safer. So, that's the last thing I want to say about that article. basevich does something brilliant here. He brings us back to Vietnam. He shows us what people said about Vietnam right after it ended. And I think he shows us that almost every one of those summaries could apply to the wars today. And that's that's scary because it makes me think we haven't learned very much from our past mistakes in history, i.e. the Vietnam War.
0: Oh, we haven't. I uh listening to you reminded me of a a bit by George Carlin, that was around the time of, uh, I'd say '95 or so, and he was talking about all the the rhetoric around us departing Vietnam, and that we pulled out, and that as a man you can't pull out. Okay, <laughs> and so in going into Iraq in '91, he 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 said that he quoted Bush and he said, "This time we're not going to pull out. This time we're going to go all the way." And yeah, it's 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 grade school type stuff, but it does reflect the intentions of a person because if you can't articulate well enough the reasons for doing it, and then you just, uh, you just downgrade the feelings, how people feel about it, then you're at a whole different set of requirements for, for, for an intervention. Um, but no, it, 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 you and I saw it in the military, the, the, um, uh, masculinity, the, the, um, uh, masculinity on hyper steroids more like it um but the the, the the nature of that and that it drives people to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do but the the key is is that can they dissect it down enough into simple things we're taking these people to this country and we're going to fight and then the result no we didn't get our result it's that simple it, it, it's not but but when It's put on to feelings. When Trump says something about, you know, our our respect in the world, uh, us being on the world stage, that people laugh at us and stuff. Well, people laugh at us because of our militarism, not because we're dealing with masculinity and don't know how to deal with it as a nation.
1: Trump talks like every single problem in the world can be drilled down to like the analogy of the bully in the schoolyard. Yeah. And it, it's, it's, it shows his intellectual immaturity, in my opinion. Foreign okay. affairs are much grayer than the black and white fables of bullies in the schoolyard. You know, a lot of that's bullshit anyway. I was raised on that shit, too. Oh, the only way to stop a bully is to fight back. The only way to stop ability is to show him that you're willing to fight. Even if you lose, he'll respect you. You know something? More than half the time, that's not fucking true. No. It just isn't. The weak guy... He probably just loses more and more. The bully is empowered every time he, you know, he beats on a little guy. Look, I'm not saying you shouldn't stand up to bullies. I'm not saying this and this is not appropriate, but violence begets violence. It does. In world affairs and in the schoolyard. But first of all, the schoolyard is not the appropriate analogy. It is so immature and so simplistic. Trump is personally afraid of people laughing at him. He is wildly insecure and then he applies that to the united states of america he takes everything personally realism and prudent foreign policy sober strategy demands it demands a mature nuanced view of foreign policy that's what matters last thing i want to say though about what you brought up (laughs) I I used to teach some cultural history at West Point, which was weird because almost everybody there just like teaches military history, but I'm really interested in like American culture and how it reflects society. And you mentioned these like these words like pull out and how there's like there's obvious sexual uh, undertones for a lot of these words when it comes to masculinity. Uh, but even in the Cold War, we saw this same thing, and I, I find language fascinating. I'm a little obsessed with language because I think language gives a lot away. It tells us something about ourselves and, and what we're thinking that maybe isn't obvious at first. During the Cold War, the, the key terminology for each of the political parties and for all politicians was, is he, is he, uh, is he soft? Is he soft on communism? You know, Is he hard? Is he, is he hard on communism? And, and I'm, I'm not trying for, for schoolyard laughs, but it's interesting that we apply these sort of phallic justifications and these nuances that are that have the, the subtlety of sexuality and masculinity as they apply to foreign policy. Keep an eye on that, folks, because uh, there's something to it. Listen to this president, and uh, and you'll see that that most uh, the most sophisticated he ever is is still immature schoolyard analogies and it's dangerous guys it's dangerous we we need serious intellectual uh, debate about these issues we're not getting it
0: no no we're not getting it at all all right guys we're moving on to a, a a different subject i don't want to call it better or worse but Got some VA stuff for you. Um, I want to talk about a fella named uh, Earl Geisler. Earl is a a US Marine veteran who was diagnosed with bladder cancer at age 46. Doctors told him that his choices were to remove his bladder, which is as horrible as it sounds, or die from the cancer. He chose to have his bladder removed. Some 20 years later, the VA started compensating both the veterans and their family members for a variety of diseases due to the massive contamination of water at Camp Lejeune. Earl filed a claim for compensation in 2014, as bladder cancer was one of the covered diseases. He was denied twice, with the second time being because he's a smoker. Now, he served about 800 days at Camp Lejeune between 1963 and 1969. The doctor who treated his cancer in 92 noted that Geisler hadn't smoked since 1971 and therefore he didn't link tobacco usage to the disease. For example, the American Cancer Society notes that after five years of quitting, the risk of bladder cancer is cut in half. Other medical studies show that after two decades of no cigarette use, smoking-related risks are of that of a person who's never smoked. Now, he mentioned uh, that another glimmer of hope came in 2016 when uh, DAV, um, disabled American veterans, agreed that there is association between certain diseases and the contaminants found at Camp Lejeune. Bladder cancer is among one of those presumptive diseases. The presumptive status rule became effective in 2017. Geisler hoped that by establishing presumptive status, it would be easier for veterans to obtain disability benefits. However, um, there's a recent update from the DAV that says his appeal is right now before the Board of Veteran Appeals, which is it's as far as it goes, I think, isn't it the Supreme Court after that? Federal Appeals? I think that's the last one. Right. So I want to talk for a minute about what a presumptive disease means. Presumptive disease status is given to a diagnosis of certain diseases without requiring specific evidence to demonstrate that military service had caused the disease. It happens when the number of, of veterans is so great in acquiring the disease in question that the VA can presumptively say any service member who meets the criteria for location and diagnosis of that disease will be approved. A good example is I have fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia is covered for Iraq and Afghanistan vets as a presumptive disease. So if you served in any of those conflicts, you get fibromyalgia, the VA just checks you off. They don't have to prove that you got it from there. I'm uplifted to hear that Earl's claim made it to the Board of Veteran Appeals, but I have the same question that he uh, posited to his interviewer, which is whether or not the VA is trying to throw a wrench in the works. Now, waiting in VA appeal limbo hell, is, it, it, it just sucks. Um, I filed for my 100% in 2011, and it took me four full years to get it. So if you're serving, make sure that you document any issues that you have and file for every claim you can when you're leaving the service. Uh, I'm looking at you, sir. Uh, uh, Make sure you take care of it. Um, My guess is that Earl's claim will be approved, given all the facts I mentioned, but it doesn't change the hardship of how long it takes the VA to process a claim. Some veterans are unable to work and might end up simply living off the disability rating payments, which at the lower levels are a pittance if you can't work. Then if a condition becomes worse, you still have to file for your increase and wait through multiple appeal levels to get your compensation. Now now we get to the, real, the really nasty, angry part here. Um, a VA whistleblower has accused the VA and the Trump administration of denying veterans' claims regarding water at Camp Lejeune. Although VA leaders have expanded online communication relating to Camp Lejeune benefits, the agency has done nothing to resolve previous concerns by veterans regarding the medical credentials of the subject matter experts who routinely deny Camp Lejeune disability claims by veterans with, with presumptive diseases. Um, going back to that thing that happened with Earl, getting a denial that simply says you're a smoker, the answer is no, is a pretty common thing. And it's never made sense to me how people that are not medical professionals can be hired by the VA as subject matter experts because they're they're not subject matter experts other than in giving people denials. So, but if if, if you don't understand the disease, how it works, the different ways it can show up, why are you doing the job? Um, In 2016, veterans groups in conjunction with Yale University Law School filed a lawsuit against the VA because the Veterans Health Administration um, uh, currently headed by uh, uh, Mr. Shulkin at the, at the time, wouldn't respond to a, a, fo- a um, freedom of information request to allow veterans to retrieve information about the credentials of the subject matter experts. Internal VA documents reveal that the 400, uh, excuse me 400,000 of the veterans who served at Camp Lejeune from 1953 to 1987 are already deceased. Due to the nature of the contamination at Camp Lejeune, the 500,000 veterans that are living are likely to have a higher mortality rate than the general population. The majority of deceased or um, living Camp Lejeune veterans and their families have not received any compensation for the health effects of the contaminants there or for the loss of their children, who were miscarried as a result of the toxic water on the base. and it goes on to, to say that a, um, a female veteran was unable to get a claim approved based on the fact that she can't have children. And while that may not cause her specific physical pain, the mental and emotional pain of the idea that you were a young person who wanted to have a family and now can't, you can never replace that. You can't take that away. And also, I, I feel like there's a little gender bias here because if it was guys and their ability to procreate that might be a little easier, but we're we're all more easy to give women's benefits not as much credit as they deserve. Um, currently, veterans who serve from or uh, excuse me, who suffer from critical illnesses like neurobehavioral effects, miscarriages, and infertility, they receive no disability compensation. To me, there's there there's no reason that Camp Lejeune and all the guys that serve there can't get the same kind of program set up that the guys for Agent Orange has. There's no reason for it. It's just money and politics. So,
1: Let's be clear. I, the fact that we are so strict about VA benefits in certain cases and that the VA is uh, so concerned about giving away money that's not deserved when we remember that the VA benefits are a pittance, they are a pittance compared to what we spend on one F thirty five fighter bomber, mm-hmm. what we spend on just deploying one soldier to Afghanistan for a year, which has been estimated to be approximately one million dollars to pay for one soldier to spend a year in Afghanistan. Wow, it, 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 it's mind blowing that because because you know you know from firsthand experience, VA benefits are appreciated, absolutely, they are necessary. Nobody's getting rich off them, though. Nope. People, especially if they can't work in addition to their VA benefits, nobody's getting rich. Nobody's sitting at home, fat and happy, pulling in such a big VA paycheck that they're buying a BMW every year. All right. That's the last thing we need to worry about. What we need to worry about is what Honeywell's doing and what Lockheed Martin's doing and all those generals going through the revolving door and then becoming consultants for these military industrial behemoths. That's where the real corporate welfare is. The arms sales to Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia for $110 billion, not soldiers who were exposed to bad water 50 years ago, Camp Lejeune. The least we can do is take care of those people because no one's getting rich. Absolutely. And uh, in reference to what you said about me, you know, I, I'll just let the listeners know um, something that's changed since one of the last ones I talk. I'm going through what's called the IDES process now. And uh, IDES is what used to be called uh, MEBs, which many of you know is a Medical Evaluation Board. The legacy system, which was the MEB system, and I think you know this probably even better than I do, used to separate the DOD side from the VA side. So once you were out of the military, then you sort of on your own volition had to go out and get your VA disability ratings. It could take a long time. Back yep. then, the DOD wasn't even on the same computer system as the VA, and the VA was using paper records most of the time. Finally, now I'm going through what's called the IDE system, which is the Integrated Disability Evaluation System. It's improved, but it's relatively new. So these veterans at Camp Lejeune are not party to the new system. For me, you know, I'm being evaluated for a number of conditions, and the, the VA side and the, and the DOD side are, are combined into one six-month program. So it's integrated, hence the, the integrated in the IDES process. And and, and whether uh, things end up with either a military uh, medical retirement or uh, just, just VA disability compensation, that's handled on both sides, the VA and the DOD, before you get out. Now, it's great that the, the military has gone to that, but – the legacy system still applies for probably 95% of veterans who got out of the military before the new IDES system came into effect about 5 years ago. So this is this is this is just an important thing to keep in mind, you know. And I, and, I, and I'll update the listeners as my process goes along because I'm sure people are interested in and, and you've spoken a lot about your you know, your process in the legacy system, which is what covers most veterans. Yeah. But uh, look, the last thing I want to say about it is let's be honest, let's empir- be empirically correct about where the money Is going in our government where the big fat cat checks are going and it's not veterans making three thousand dollars a month you know uh from the va these people aren't getting rich they're squeaking by they're 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 making the best of a tough situation this is not what we should be concerned about this is not the money we should be you know parsing our pennies over
0: absolutely no it's uh it's very frustrating to read about. I have to, I'm, I'm glad that I'm, I'm at the tail end of all my appeals and I don't have to wait on that to take care of my family. There was a time there four or five years ago that I, it wasn't enough it, it, and I, I couldn't. there was nothing I could do. There was nothing I could do to expedite it or um, to make it any better for myself. I just had to wait out the appeals. So um, if anyone listening has any questions on this, um, I'm pretty versed on, on VA uh, claims and appeals. Uh, drop us a message at uh, fortressonahill at gmail.com. And also, if you served at Camp Lejeune for any amount of time, go to the doctor, go to the VA, get the benefits that you need to have. The more people that come forward and are seen to be impacted by this, the simpler it becomes for for the administration to say, okay, we just want people to shut up and we'll do the right thing now because that's the only possible option we have left. Now I want to show you something, Danny, and you can... uh, Tell the uh, tell the listeners what you think of it. I'm gonna share my screen with you here real quick. I got a little short video that I'd like you to see. Find the right button. There we go. Okay. can you see what I'm doing? I cannot. Okay. Oh, didn't hit the second button. There we go. Okay. Here we go, take a look at this.
1: This is, what I'm looking at right now is, is water so dark brown that it looks like coffee's coming out of the faucet in Quantico, Virginia. And now also out of the shower head, making it look like uh, coffee is, is, is literally spilling everywhere or rusty water. My guess is that's not from 50 years ago.
0: No, that's not from 50 years ago. That is happening right now, like you said, to some of the Marines that live at Quantico. Um, I can't tell you how apeshit I would go if I went into the bathroom that my Joes were in, my soldiers were using, and their water looked like that. I would not stop until something got it changed. And again, I don't know what process the NCOs and officers there have done to try to rectify this, so I, I can't comment on that. But the least that we can do is make sure that people have decent facilities to live in. You know, b- barracks are already tore up and a lot of them old in many cases. I'm sure that the place we're seeing this faucet from is from a building that was built in the 50s or 60s maybe. Um, but these are the kind of things that troops do deal with. And so the Camp Lejeune thing, for if, if you, if, if it seems way out there, it's not. It's really not. Because often... It's the lowest bidder that takes care of military contracts, and stuff like this does happen. So if you live at Quantico, get in somebody's ass. I hope you guys can get it worked out, and I hope that it doesn't make anybody sick. But Danny, you saw it. That is some nasty, nasty nasty-looking water.
1: Yeah, it's hard to believe that it's real, quite frankly, Um, and that this is going on in the year 2018 after 17 years of war. After someone's already been fired for poor conditions at Walter Reed a number of years ago, the fact that we haven't gotten all these sort of installation problems up to at least a basic standard is, is really appalling. Because again, we have we have plenty of money for precision guided munitions that we're giving to the Saudis to drop on Yemeni civilians, but yep. we aren't fixing the brown coffee water problem at uh, Quantico. It's it's unacceptable. Absolutely. So uh, my my last headline today is uh, about Turkey, my favorite American frenemy, our newest frenemy. This article is called "Handling Turkey's Erdogan." That's the uh, president of Turkey. What Washington can learn from Russia? Ooh, learn from Russia. I'm just I'm just waiting I'm just I'm just waiting for the hate mail to come in saying that I'm like a Putin lackey, uh, because if you if you ever uh, defend Russia or say we can learn anything from them, then obviously you must be uh, in on the whole. Uh, Russiagate thing. Here's what's up, guys. Anti-Americanism is running high in Turkey, like very high. This is a NATO ally. They have the second largest military in NATO. And a recent opinion poll there shows that Turkish citizens overwhelmingly view the United States as the top security threat to their country and Russia as their leading ally. We should be concerned about that. The National Defense strategy that Matt has put out last month says that russia is a, a primary if not the primary threat to the united states i don't agree with that but that's what we are currently saying that it's an adversarial power that is revisionist and wants to undermine nato if our nato ally turkey sees russia as more of an ally and the united states as more of a threat then we have to take a hard look at our relationship with turkey here's what's up right now turkey has invaded syria and is attacking the very Kurdish forces that the United States backed and armed to defeat ISIS. So it was, it was American bombs and Kurdish blood that liberated Raqqa and many other ISIS-occupied cities in Eastern Syria. Turkey considers them terrorists, considers the Kurds terrorists, because they're fighting their own counterinsurgency against Kurds who live in the Southeast portion of Turkey. And America is about to have to make a decision. Which is, do we back our ally, the Kurds, or do we abandon them to potentially slaughter from the Turks? The other question we have to answer is do we go to war with a NATO ally in order to protect the Kurds? And what happens if an American advisor who's with the Kurds gets killed by a Turkish bomb or a Turkish tank? I wish I had the answer to all those questions. I don't. What I can say for a fact is we put ourselves in this situation. We put ourselves in the situation. When we put soldiers on the ground in Syria, when we decided that we needed to get involved in Syria, we set ourselves up for something like this to happen. When Turkey invaded northern Syria, we couldn't stop them. We didn't have that kind of sway in the Middle East like we think we had or that we used to have. The area where the Turks invaded was actually under Russian air control. So the the Turks had to get clearance to go into the Russian airspace over Syria and basically, therefore, only had to comply with Moscow's restrictions and not with our own. This article argues that Russia and Putin have played hardball with Erdogan and have no qualms about pressuring Ankara, capital of Turkey, Whereas the United States has played basically a role as a whipping boy in Turkish politics. I don't agree that the United States is as evil as many people on the street in Turkey think we are. But there is a reason they think that. And we need to take a hard look at our intervention in Syria, which I would argue is aimless and drifting along at this point. What are we trying to accomplish in Syria? How many Americans know that America currently owns, owns one third of Syria? The Northeast third of Syria is under the occupation of the United States, backing our Kurdish allies on the ground. There's very little legal sort of meaning for us being there. There's, there, there's no legal sanction in international law we weren't invited by Assad, who's still the sovereign of the country, even if he is a monster. And the fact that the Turks see the United States and our allies, the Kurds, as more of a threat than the Russians, who are a traditional enemy of the Turks, I'm talking for like 500 years now, they've been fighting wars over the northeast portion of Turkey, which Russia has long coveted. All I want to say about this article is keep your eye on Syria. Syria is the next trap. Syria is the next quagmire for the United States. We are on the verge of a major regional war in Syria, and it would not take too much to kick it off. This is the problem. This is the problem with getting involved in other areas. Maybe it sounds like a good idea. Maybe we tell ourselves, oh, we're going to protect the innocent from being slaughtered. Sometimes that's true, but we often do more damage by getting involved than if we stayed out or if we provided political or humanitarian aid rather than military aid. Because right now, we are one dead American soldier, whether he's killed by a Russian aircraft, a Turkish tank, one of Bashar al-Assad's Syrian soldiers, or an Iranian member of the Revolutionary Guards Corps. Because we are on a standoff along the Euphrates River in Syria now. We occupy one-third of Syria. Bashar al-Assad's regime and his Iranian and Russian allies occupy the other two-thirds. And we're staring one another down in a new Cold War that looks remarkably, disturbingly similar to Berlin during the Cold War. It will not take much for an accident to happen and a war to kick off in that area. And America is going to have to make another tough call. Abandon the Kurds, which my head tells me is probably the most reasonable thing to do. And my heart pains over because the Kurds have been good allies for the United States. We put ourselves in this situation again and again where we have to balance the head and the heart And unfortunately, I think that no matter what decision we take, someone's going to lose. And either the head or the heart is going to be pained. And and what I would say is this right here, the fact that we may nearly go to war with a NATO ally in Syria is the exact reason why military force should be the last resort instead of the first tool as it's been for the United States since 9-11. And that's really all the last thing I want to say about Turkey and Syria. I mean, I talk about it every week. On the pod. I'm obsessed with it. It, it literally consumes me uh, every day. But I, I, I just want us to think about this again. Think about what it means that the United States may go to war or may come into military conflict with a NATO ally because we got involved in somebody else's region. Syria touches Turkey. The United States is thousands of miles away and yet we insert ourselves in these situations rather than letting the local regional actors work it out for themselves. And, uh, we're one accident away from a war. Keep that in mind.
0: No, I, uh, what you mentioned about the heart, I, I, it floors me that the, the Peshmerga and and just Kurds in general, what they have both, what they have done for the region trying to you know help Iraq trying to uh wanting to have their own independence and like you said it's it, it's it, it it it's simpler and easier for us to say no just you know we can't do that but those guys fought hard and like you said American bombs and Kurdish blood um so but I I uh I, I answered a few questions the other day on Qura, and they somebody asked what they thought with the next quagmire we were going to get involved in and I I said Syria and I, I I think you covered it really well. I, I the uh one thing that I thought about was that Jordanian pilot that uh went down. And that again we we've had that incident, we had the um our backed forces and the Russian backed forces that had that that fight um recently was in the last two weeks. It's it, it it's not impossible. It's not even improbable at this point. It's it's and it like Danny said, there's, there's nothing to stop us from getting into a full-blown war with another nuclear power at this point. Ju- we're just on each other's edges just like that. And it's, 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 it's hard to, gr- to grasp, honestly.
1: That's what happens. When you, when you put your soldiers in 70% of the world's countries and when you put a ring of military forces around your, quote, adversaries, you're asking for trouble. When you put two nuclear armed military forces in close proximity and you call them an adversary like we do in official U.S. documents, you're asking for trouble. Yep. And it's that kind of hyper-interventionism that has gotten us in these problems before. We learn nothing from Afghanistan where I watch people bleed. We learn nothing from Iraq where I watch people bleed. And here we are doing the exact same thing in Syria. And And, and my cadets, my freshman cadets who I taught at West Point – are, are about ready to graduate this May and some of them are going to the same countries that I was in 17 years later. It's, it, it, it's, it's absolutely shocking and, uh, and it's terrifying. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, keep your eye on Syria, folks, because uh, it's going to be interesting in a negative way. a staggering number when you talk about 22 out of 27 million people needing some form of assistance if you watch the american news whether it's the liberal or the conservative outlets you would think that yemen doesn't really exist if it gets a if it gets one notation on the scroll at the bottom of the screen that's that's a good thing on the other hand when when i watch bbc there's some fairly regular reporting on yemen and that's gotten me interested in the topic but it's very difficult to figure out how the United States population, which is very complicit in the war, as we'll talk about later, you know, how do we get them uh, informed and involved and interested in this conflict in a in a country which, in, in peacetime, correct me if I'm wrong, is the poorest in the Arab world? Yeah, absolutely
2: right. Yeah. And I think the other issue is um, particularly relevant to Europe, perhaps. Um, you know, people would have paid more attention earlier on if what had happened in Syria had happened with Yemenis, i.e. people had been shifting out the country in their hundreds of thousands as, as refugees. Um, Yemenis hadn't been doing that. And the main reason is because most people can't afford to do it. There wasn't that base of middle class people who had the disposable income of, of, of a few thousand dollars in order to be able to get themselves out of the country. So although there have been some Yemenis who've made that trip, they've taken the, the boat across the Red Sea and gone up through, through Libya and across to Europe, it's not in the same numbers that you saw in, 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 in the, as a result of the war in Syria, because people just don't even have the disposable income to buy food, never, be, never mind being able to afford the transport and being able to pay sort of people smugglers or whatever to get out of the country. So the people are displaced internally, often in very remote areas. But of course, it means that the awareness level took a long time to, for people to become really interested in the conflict. Or even aware of it because you weren't seeing that footfall, if you like, in Europe, and it didn't have a direct impact on people's lives.
1: Henry,
0: I'm here. Sorry, I was thinking. Um, I'd like to ask about the um, about the battle scene in Al Gale. How do you say the? Is that how you pronounce yeah,
2: that? Yeah. Uh, Fine, yeah.
0: Number one, I uh, having only seen the Middle East through, like we mentioned earlier, you know, through body armor and carrying weapons. To see, you have to take that trip, and 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 picturing kind of these obstacles that were in your way. It was just amazing the the risks you were willing to take just to go and see the scene there, and and meet with the people and as read more and more about it you know that the trump administration really wanted to sell it as this high precision kind of thing you know that they had a, a very specific goal and then they didn't they didn't release uh what was his name the um al ramey that they were that they were after him uh from from the beginning but they didn't let anybody know I don't understand why it was worth the risk, why it was. It, it seemed like it was more showboating than anything else. You have it was I think it was eight days after President Trump was inaugurated. They said that that it was cleared by the Obama administration when it wasn't. Um, but it, it seemed like, a, you know, our, our first trip to town kind of mentality. And I, I just wondered what, what kind of sense you got from it as far as the notions about the mission.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not a military person like you guys. Um, So I'm looking at it very much from from uh, an uninformed perspective um, in in that way. But certainly when I I went to the village, I think even just driving in there um, initially was just the fact that the majority of the village um, was on higher ground and where the Navy SEALs were coming in was on lower ground. And so they were, again, you, you know, not with a military background, but immediately going to be put on the back foot just because of the geographical layout of the village, if you like. Absolutely. Uh, uh, add to that the fact that it would have it it should have been very clear to anybody who was planning this operation that they were going to come under heavy and intensive fire from anybody in that area when they turned up. Um, that village was right behind the front lines. They have been fighting the Houthis not since 2015, but since 2014 um in in the, in the, in that area called Yakla that's refers to the district where the village was so of course the the, the seals were coming in on foot although they've been airdropped in um in order for for people not to be aware that they were coming um so when the firefight started um people were coming I, I mean I spoke to a guy who was driving from 45 minutes away when he heard what was going on um in order to join the fight not knowing when he set off that this was, U.S. and and um, what appeared to be UAE forces as well involved in this operation. It was only once the firefight started, and the guys there told me they saw the kind of the 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 red lasers on the on the front of the weapons that they realized that this wasn't that probably the Houthis. And then of course, when the air support came in, then they knew um, because the Houthis haven't got air support by that stage. Um, all hell has broken loose already. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, this is what I, you know, even from a from a US standpoint or a, or a US military standpoint, would be exactly why run that risk? Because even if it is Rami in there, you're going into a situation where there is, um, you know, tribesmen in there who are armed, who are going to defend their villages, whatever they're they're willing to die to do that, and it's got nothing to do with Al Qaeda. Um, and so, I mean, that was a, quite clearly an, an obvious risk at the time. Um, and then there was a lot of suspicion, though, amongst the locals there about where the intelligence for this operation had come from. And I think you have to look back about the U.S. to the U.S. relationship over many years with the Yemeni government, with the former president Saleh, um, and how that counterterrorism, particularly the intelligence side of it, operated. And that all really came from a, an, an agency that the U.S. helped set up in Yemen called the National Security Bureau or the NSB. Um, and there was certainly a sense from the people that I spoke to, both from the village village and, and elsewhere, that the despite the civil war in Yemen, that the Americans were potentially still using that channel with the National Security Bureau that was still being controlled then by Saleh, who teamed up with the Houthis, um, but they were still keeping channels of communications open with the N.S.P. Um, now, of course, as far as the people in that village were concerned, they were fighting the Houthis. They're their enemy. Um, and so as some speculated that the U.S. had been tricked, if you like, into killing off their most senior tribal commander who died in that firefight, um, who had been leading all of the tribal forces in that area against the Houthis and was killed in that raid. Um, That's... That intelligence they speculated had been fed deliberately either to the UAE or to the US from Saleh from the National Security Bureau in order to get to weaken their defences of their villages in 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 the area of that Yatla. Now this is the kind of conflict, therefore, the US is throwing itself into when it starts going in there with night raids or it's going in there with heavily bombing um, of, with both drone strikes and airstrikes and everything else. Um, Yes, there is a low level presence of Al Qaeda there. And I, you know, I pointed that out in my reporting. Um, but uh, far from harboring, as some people accuse them of terrorists, they have, um, they have little choice in, in joining, or I say joining out, in, in fighting alongside Al Qaeda in this war. In those very rural areas, there's no army units, there's no coalition troops in there. There's no Yemeni government military helping them to fight. So when Al-Qaeda comes along and says, yes, we'll fight you, we'll help you fight the Houthis, then of course, they're going to be quite willing to take them up on that offer in the absence of anything else. They know that Al-Qaeda brings a risk with them. But the greater risk from them, the greater threat for them is coming from the Houthis who are trying to take their land, who are trying to take their villages. Al-Qaeda is not doing that. It's are offering to fight alongside them. So... Um, they know the risk that that, that that brings for them, but the far greater risk for them and the greater enemy, most immediate enemy, is is the Houthis. That doesn't mean that they ideologically agree with al-Qaeda or want them around them, but they don't have a lot of choices when there's a civil war going on and there's nobody else to help them defend their, their villages.
1: That's the sort of nuance I think that most uh, American leaders seem to miss. And uh, Saleh, I believe, one of the books written about him talked about him dancing on the head of snakes and knowing how to play one side against the other in order to stay in power. And it seems like he learned early on that if you cry terrorist, you can quickly get the United States on your side to potentially support you and attack some of your enemies.
2: Yeah, he did some drone strikes before. Um, You know, we know that from previous reporting that Saleh had managed to get the U.S. to to kill off at least one of his enemies um, in a drone strike by giving them misintelligence.
1: So, of course, in that sense, you can understand the suspicion on the ground that perhaps the United States was still working through its old intelligence sources. You mentioned al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, which in the United States has been labeled as one of the most dangerous branches or franchises of al-Qaeda, especially in the wake of the assassination, because that's what it was, of Anwar al-Awlaki, who was an American citizen, and then uh, his teenage son, and then I believe most recently his daughter uh, also killed in the raid. What overall, though, has the result been for AQAP? Uh, I've often heard that al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula has actually been strengthened by uh, the war in Yemen. And if that's the case, you know, why has that been? And, and, and to what extent is the United States sort of complicit in that?
2: Well, I still don't think that al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula would exist today in Yemen if it hadn't been for the Yemeni state. Um, they have, uh, Saleh had, uh, you know, a long history of using Al-Qaeda, like you say, crying terrorists, but also extracting money out of the U.S. Um, in the form of military support and training and training for many, many years. Uh, and you could even have the data on that and the correlation between sort of Al-Qaeda activity and when the, when the money is going up and down. Um, uh, and also for, for domestic political reasons, uh, Al Qaeda was often responsible for many assassinations in in knocking out opponents of of, of Saleh as well. Um, but as far as the the um, their strength, I mean, there's, there's a lot of people now that would argue that Al Qaeda Peninsula I mean, is um, at its weakest point that it has been since 2012. They controlled a lot of territory in southern. America. I don't necessarily agree with that. Actually, um, yes, they controlled territory in the first year of the of the, of the Saudi um, intervention in Yemen from 2015 to 2016, but territory hasn't really been a priority for them. Certainly since 2012, they learned that it wasn't worth fighting to defend territory after losing so many men back in 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 in, the, in southern Yemen in 2012. Um, Numbers-wise, again, it's really hard to tell as far as the U.S. is concerned. If they're including all those tribesmen who are both driving around in cars, fighting alongside and and sleeping alongside um, AQAP guys, then the numbers have probably gone into the tens of thousands. But numbers-wise, it's kind of hard to tell. But what they have done in this conflict is made money Um, through smuggling networks, through the looting of uh, military camps, through um, when they were fighting on, on the front line with UAE-supported forces in southern Yemen, when they took back military bases that were controlled by the Houthis, um, the local fighters there told me that al-Qaeda knew exactly where to go in those military bases to find, you know, the RPGs and and the Grad rockets and and all the rest of it. They knew where to go and find the equipment to to take it out. So, um, yeah, in in that sense, the money that they've made, um, they've made more money in the course of this war than in their entire history. And of course, where does that money go? That Money goes into either trying to build up relationships in local communities by providing simple things like water and electricity that the state hasn't done ever, um, or in kind of research and development, which is obviously more of a concern to the U.S., i.e. in, in, in bond-making capabilities and everything else. The latter, I, I have no more uh, knowledge or idea about that than, than anybody else. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, certainly financially, they are... Um, at their strongest now than they have ever been because of this war. Um, And they have been able to strengthen because, more specifically because of the the state over many years, but also then the the intervention of the the Saudi coalition since 2015 has also helped them.
1: It's so striking to me, hearing you talk about this, how incredibly counterproductive so much of American and and Saudi-American-backed forces have been when it comes to aqap because in the united states we're talking about how aqap is is such a dangerous franchise how it's transnational terror it's one of the most uh, efficient and able to attack uh, the united states sort of branches of al-qaeda and yet the saudi-led campaign with u.s backing it appears at least financially and in terms of their ability to kind of uh, intertwine with the community has only made them stronger Which leads me to my next question, which is, you know, for our listeners who uh, we hope are, you know, a lot of, you know, broad range of U.S. interests, but also veterans, you know, to what extent is the U.S. military complicit in the Saudi war? You know, you spoke so much about the humanitarian catastrophe there. Well, to what extent are we complicit? You know, what is the U.S. military's role and, and, and how is it playing into this attack from the Saudis?
2: Well, what we do know is that the U.S. is um, heavily involved in making the air war possible. Um, and according to U.N. figures, um, the the Saudi coalition bombing is responsible for the majority of civilian casualties in, in the conflict um, because the, the U.S. air force is doing midair refueling for the fighter jets being used um, in the bombing campaign in Yemen. And without that support, they logistically would not be able to send their fighter jets in for bombing runs in the country, of which there have been well over 16,000 air raids in the country since March 2015. Um, so that's really crucial for the US to the air campaign. Um, i said it before, if the US stopped refuelling um, tonight, then the bombing campaign would have to stop tomorrow, um, because they wouldn't be able to operate um, the other way they're helping the the saudis is on intelligence gathering and um on on targeting uh now the, the there are probably more questions than than answers on that one um uh, i mean the u.s denies that they're actually selecting targets for the saudi coalition and, and in fact have drawn up a um a long list of of no, uh, of no uh, a no strike list i think they called it um targets that shouldn't be, have been hit which the Saudi coalition went on to target many of them, um, you know, targets such as as bridges needed to transport aid and food across the country and other crucial imp- civilian infrastructure. Um, and uh, I mean, interestingly, though that intelligence also appears to have been reconnaissance in the sense that the the Houthis managed to take down a U.S. drone that was being used for surveillance well inside their territory, which would suggest um, a more direct involvement in intelligence gathering for the Saudis, and, and not just using necessarily satellite imagery, but but using um, drone aircraft for surveillance on behalf of the Saudi coalition. And then the other element is the third element is, is the US Navy. Um, again, there are a lot of questions about that. The US um, warships have been positioned in the Red Sea coast, which um, at least their presence may have some on her data port and the import restrictions. Of course, the U.S. Navy in the Gulf of Aden to the south of Yemen, um, as have many nations. Um, That's been going on, obviously, for many years, um, with the proximities to Somalia and everything else. But um, their presence in in the Red Sea um, does raise a lot of questions, because that raises the question, how involved are they in the blockade and import restrictions on the Red Sea coast? which is having a direct impact on people essentially starving to death inside the country. Um, They were obviously there in in October 2016 um, when the Houthis supposedly tried to attack one of the U.S. warships and the U.S. retaliated by knocking out um, radar systems on shore. Uh, Mm. But how permanent is their presence in the Red Sea Um, are those warships stationed there um, just for a few days at a time whilst they're moving through those waters, or are they there semi-permanently slash permanently and really being heavily involved in the blockade element? And therefore also, you know, the Houthis see the U.S. as a belligerent. Whether the U.S. likes to say they are or they aren't, as far as the Houthis are concerned and the many people in northern Yemen, they see this as a U.S.-Saudi war. Um, And that comes across in the language when you speak to people. So even if the U.S. like to say we are not actively engaged in the conflict because we haven't got troops on the ground or we're not moving Saudi troops, as far as as people in northern Yemen are concerned, who are being impacted by this both humanitarian um, uh, crisis and the air campaign, they see the U.S. as a belligerent in this conflict. Um, And so, of course, that puts any U.S. uh, warship, even if they're in international waters, they're still seen, therefore, as, as a legitimate target by the Houthis, potentially.
1: It's it's so striking when you said if the United States cut off the aerial refueling and some of the intelligence that the bombing would essentially have to stop. Most Americans don't even realize the United States is involved in this war in Yemen. If they've heard of the war, they may know that Saudi Arabia is involved. And yet you're you're letting me know that, you know, not only is the United States complicit, but in some ways it's it's the key element in allowing the Saudis to accomplish what they have, which is, is absolutely wild. And again, on U.S. news networks, there's very little coverage of Yemen. But I remember watching on BBC several times, and there are Houthis uh, in northern Yemen who are really shouting uh, down with America, you know, this sort of language. So like you said, they certainly don't see the distinction between the Saudi campaign and U.S. complicity.
2: Right. I mean, although going back to the Houthi slogan, they don't really help themselves. Their slogan since they started, and it goes back actually to to, to the Iraq war, is death to America, death to Israel, damn the Jews, to Islam. Um, I, I mean, even before the war, their argument was, it's like Coca-Cola, that's just a slogan. But yeah, that was always part of their rhetoric, um, even even if they said they didn't really mean it. Uh, but I think the issue is now as well is with the weapons sound, uh, I mean, I physically, with my own hands, have dug out bomb remnants um, from a house where two children were killed and they were U.S. bomb remnants. You can get the serial numbers up of the bomb remnants, you can put them into your phone, and you can find out where those bombs come from. And wow. yes, there are other countries involved in selling weapons to the Saudi coalition, but the vast majority that you find on the grounds are U.S. bomb remnants when you when you dig out the serial numbers like that. So, of course, when you as a Yemeni... Um, can do that yourself when your house has been bombed, or your or your relatives, or or your neighbours, and you know that that bomb has come from the U.S. Even if the Americans didn't drop it, they're still seeing that as 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 an American bombing, if you like. Uh, and that's another issue. I, I mean, the weapon sales is obviously a big issue for for, for Britain and, and the U.K. as well. Um, but the the bomb remnants that are turning up mostly in, in Yemen are are U.S. made.
1: It's uh, it's really demoralizing to hear, and and I'm glad that you're here telling us this because so few Americans understand this issue. Um, President Trump has announced a 110 billion dollar deal with Saudi Arabia. That's billion with a B. So this does not look to be ending anytime soon. What I would say, based on what you're telling us, is that you know the Houthis don't see any distinction between the Saudis and and ourselves. If a family loses a child and they dig up the bomb remnants and they realize it's American, they're going to rightfully blame the United States. Most Americans are not moved by humanitarian concerns, unfortunately. And so I would sort of reorient it this other way for the subset of Americans who does seem to care about our own soldiers, because it seems like the only thing that the political left and the political right in the United States can agree on is that they love the troops, right? They love the troops like Henry and I, you know, we're so sick of hearing that. But that's that's a reality. Yeah. Well, I, I would submit that perhaps American sailors in the Red Sea and American soldiers throughout the greater Middle East are actually in more danger because of the United States role in Yemen. It's certainly not winning us any friends on the Arab street, I imagine.
2: Yeah, I mean, um, Obama's justification for getting involved in, in supporting the Saudis at the beginning of this. Um, was stated as being to protect American interests and American civilians, and you know that that as you say now, this war, if anything, is doing the exact opposite of that. Um, whereas the Trump administration said that their interest in supporting the Saudis was was because of a focus on the humanitarian concerns. Well. Um, in both administrations, the, the U.S. role is doing actually the reverse of what has been stated as been been the reason for for that involvement. Um, so yes, it's certainly increasing anti-American sentiment um, in in vast parts of northern Yemen, which is the most densely populated part of the country, as well as you know perhaps people don't care so much about it, but as well as helping people helping to starve people to death. And when I say people, you're talking about mainly children here. Um, and I've seen them now. And that doesn't matter if they're in Houthi territory or in coalition-controlled territory. There are children starving to death in Saudi coalition-controlled territory, as well as in, in the Houthi-controlled north. And, and that's reality for, for Yemenis across the country now, is not being able to feed their children.
1: This is such a pessimistic story and such a, such a dark tale of U.S. complicity, of, of Saudi terror bombing, of the absolute tragedy of children starving to death, which if it were happening in Europe or if it were happening in the United States would be the number one story on the nightly news. One of the frustrations that Henry and I have had is getting to know Iraqi children, getting to know Afghan children. It's hard to see anything except a human face, regardless of their religion, regardless of their ethnicity. Do you see, you know, and and I'll kind of end it with this, but do you see any reasons for optimism, any reasons for hope, in terms of getting uh, the UK and the US public to care or potentially uh, change policy? What, what gives you reason for hope, if anything?
2: Um, I'm not sure I have much hope about that. There's of course the war powers resolution that will be um, voted on in, in, in the Senate. Um, but I think you can probably predict which way that will go. Um, I think uh, actually in the UK, there has been, I think, a bit of a shift in the, in the public conscious anyway. Certainly seeing what happened in, in reaction to Mohammed bin Salman's visit, uh, the Saudi crown prince to the UK, there was quite a lot of pushback, certainly even on the front of the media into trying to break down the, the Saudi PR machine um, who'd managed to put you know mass adverts in all the national newspapers about Mohammed bin Salman's visit and how great it was for the UK uh, and at least there was some balance on that in the media by pointing out the involvement um, and impact of, of, of the war in Yemen. Um, I suppose my only optimism, if I can call it that, uh, at the moment is, is the hope for a, a political, some kind of political discussion starting soon. There is a new UN special envoy um, that's just been assigned to Yemen at the beginning of March, um, and we can only hope that May at least kickstart uh, a new process of talks because um, there doesn't, doesn't look like anything else to be really optimistic about at the moment. Um, as far as Yemen is concerned, it looks like this war will go on for a long, long time yet.
1: It's uh, disturbing to hear, but I appreciate your candor and tend to agree with you, especially when it comes to uh, U.S. politics. Despite the Sanders-Lee bipartisan bill in the U.S. Senate, uh, I don't hold out much hope for that passing and I don't hold out much hope for the war powers resolution to be revoked or relooked at in the United States. But, uh, at least for our part, I think, uh, we're going to, we're going to hammer this issue. We, we did uh, one show on Yemen before you came on. Uh, this has been much better because of your, uh, well, you don't like to say expertise, but because of your, uh, knowledge on Yemen and your specialty, we're going to keep banging this drum and, uh, I think our status as uh, as veterans, as dissenting, skeptical veterans, with a love for the people we've met in the Middle East, uh, is going to keep us on top of this Yemen issue. And I can't say whether that will help, but, uh, but we're not going to stop reading your reporting. We're not going to stop uh, using your headlines in our uh, in our episodes and, and just continue to talk about the role of the U.S. military and the U.S. government in this humanitarian disaster and helping to create one of the four famines across uh, Africa and and uh southwest asia so henry do you have any other uh final questions for Iona?
0: um i have saw it in a couple different articles that you wrote that you've noticed very succinctly that the yemeni people have become accepting of the horrible conditions they're living in and I guess I I think that it's important for the people listening to understand about that, what happens to people in that place, because, so could you describe a little bit about what you've seen as far as citizens there accepting it and kind of the horror that goes with that?
2: Yeah, I think that's really hit me, particularly with, with children in Yemen, um, at the beginning of the war, children would be scared when you heard fighter jets coming in on bombing runs. Um, even now, when they hear the fighter jets coming in, they can hear the missiles whistling in as well. They've become so accustomed to it. In places like uh, which has been under siege for three years, children there are living in, in sniper alleys. So if they go out of their front door, um, and across, crying across the street, they are at risk of, of having their heads essentially. Yet they become used to that. Um, to get out of their house, when I went to meet some of them, they ducked out of the door and they ran with their heads down towards me. And that's normal for them. Um, that kind of level of violence, and you'll stand and talk to them in the street where they've seen their friends killed, either by snipers or by shelling, and then they will hear gunfire in the background or shelling, and they won't even flinch. Um, and they will just shrug their shoulders and say, we used to be scared, but we're not anymore. It's normal. And how something like that become, should become normal, particularly for children, is absolutely horrifying. That a child should have to live on a street where there is a tarpaulin stretched across it in order to try and hide um themselves from a, from a sniper down the road, or who can't go to school because they risk being killed on their way there. Um, and this has somehow become normal life for many children across Yemen. And then in some of the rural areas, I've met children who will just sit there and daydream about food that they used to be able to eat, about eating chicken, about eating chocolate cake or chocolate bars, things that they can never eat now, um, about having a fizzy drink like a Pepsi or something like that that they haven't had for many years now because of the conflict because they can't afford to buy that kind of food, who are living on bread and oil. Um, I met a family who'd had rice for the first time they've been given it by a human humanitarian organization were eating rice for the first time in a month and they were displaced they had been living in a cave on a mountainside and had moved out of the cave because the fighting had continued and were living in a tent and they got their rice and they were cooking it the first rice they'd had the meal they'd have for their family in a month and they asked me to come and sit down and eat with them uh and that's the kind of hospitality you get from Yemenis and, and what are we really giving them in return for that? Um as a citizen of the of the UK, I know that we're giving in return for that uh weapon sales to Saudi Arabia, fighter jets. Um we are as a as a country complicit in the humanitarian crisis because of that support. And yet people who are starving on the side of a mountain will offer you literally their life. I have to say I didn't accept that offer, <laughs> but but yes, I think um, it's it's very um, it's a very depressing place to be now. But uh, I'd always said Yemenis were very resilient people, and they 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 historically have been. They've had very little support from the state, really, um, uh, if ever. But that resilience is going down bit by bit because of conflict. people are. Now just struggling to survive every single
0: day. Really appreciate you uh, sharing everything you have about them. Um, you know, like Danny mentioned earlier, that there's a uh, there's a disconnect that we feel Americans have from the humanity of, especially of people in the Middle East. That there's a kind of an unspoken tradition of downgrading them you know we trump calls people animals and you know that we even at times have to go after their families so it's it's a it's a very i know for Danny and I it's a very foreign place to be right now but it's really important that people understand the toll that we as americans are bringing to this despite the fact that we don't hear anything about american boots on the ground there the major networks here don't cover it. We're not talking about it at all. Um, and I think that that's also, I mean, that's just a, a great example of where America has turned in terms of warfare period, you know, between 2001 and today, nothing has changed. You know, we're still, we have to take people back to Iraq again because of ISIS.
1: No, I mean, this, this has been absolutely great. Um, we're thankful for the time that that you've given to us and the personal experiences you've shared. That's the sort of thing that we not only don't get in the American news, but we can't even bring as veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan, because, uh, what most Americans fail to realize is there's such a difference between each of these countries. They're all unique in the same way that any other country is unique. Um, we have a tendency to sort of lump them all together into one monolith and that's clearly not the case. Um, I know you're getting ready to go to Yemen again soon. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, hopefully. Yeah.
1: Well, good good luck with that trip. And thanks so much for your time. Hopefully uh, we can get an update from you in, uh, in a few months and maybe uh, there'll be something a little more optimistic to report. And if not, then I think we still need to talk about it and keep ringing the alarm bells over here uh, as just as you're doing in the UK as well
2: thanks so much for having me and, and taking uh, such a such a decent amount of time to talk about Yemen it's it's kind of really refreshing I, I really appreciate it um and yeah I'd be happy to come back and talk to you again um, after my next trip
1: well that, that that'd be great well we're, we're dorks uh, who are just complete nerds and love to talk about things like Yemen so you're you're in good company <laughs> <laughs> thanks very that's, much
2: it's a small group of people <laughs> yes, <laughs> it's, yes, yeah, it, yes.
1: is. it is it's, 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 it's an it's a niche market isn't it. It's, <laughs> <really cool. laughs> Well, well, thank you again.
2: Not at all. Um, thanks for taking the time.
1: All right. We'll talk soon.
2: Yeah, talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. Thanks, guys.
1: All right, bye. So I'm going to get us started with uh, the second iteration of our uh, rant, the five-minute rant. So uh, Henry's going to start the clock. We're going to keep it to a maximum of five minutes. And today, because we're crazy, we're going to talk about two issues. The recent California gunman who, uh, who, who shot some women, uh, killed them uh, at a California VA center. And then the fact that President Trump's military parade, which we ranted about last time we did this segment, uh, will now be held on Veterans Day. All right, guys. So here's the thing. This, uh, this former Army rifleman, Albert Wong, 36 years old, um, killed some, some women on the staff. Of what's actually the largest veterans' home uh, in the entire Veterans Affairs healthcare system out in California. Wong was a, a rifleman, an infantryman. He served in Afghanistan in 2011 to 12, which is exactly when I was in Afghanistan. It was not a pretty time to be an infantryman in Afghanistan. Now, here's what's up I by no means mean to imply that Albert Wong is representative of American veterans. No. He is not, he is an outlier. He is an outlier who committed a horrific crime of which we don't even know the full story yet. I do want to say something about veterans, though, and it's this. Although Albert Wong is an outlier, don't act surprised when bad things happen involving veterans. When you as an American people vote for and put in power Democrats and Republicans who have perpetuated 17 years of endless war, created two, three, coming up on four million veterans of the post-9-11, quote, war on terror, expect bad things to happen. What do I mean by bad things? I mean, when you create the problem, when you create new veterans, when you create new PTSD, you know, sufferers, you're going to continue to see 22 suicides a day among veterans, as we're seeing. You're going to continue to see homeless veterans. You're going to continue to see occasionally the outlier who commits violence, whether against his own family, the police, or in this case, some amazing public servants who are working for the VA healthcare system. Don't act surprised. Tim O'Brien is one of my favorite writers. He was a, a private in Vietnam and he became a novelist. And he said in one of his most famous stories, which was called How to Tell a True War Story in his amazing collection, The Things They Carried, he said, if you don't like profanity, you don't like reality. And if you send your boys to war, you better expect they're going to come home talking dirty. And I would add to that that if you send your boys to war, especially to ill-advised, indecisive wars that are largely fought, I believe, we believe, for nothing except their comrades, then you will reap the whirlwind. You reap what you sow. We can't be surprised when there are veteran suicides. We can't be surprised when there are veteran murders. We can't be surprised when there are homeless vets. If we want to fix this problem, we have to do two things. Number one, do less in the world. Be less anti-interventionist. Create less traumatized war veterans. And the second thing is, you better, I mean you motherfucking better, put as much money and as much emphasis on the care for those returning veterans, as you did on the bombs and the missiles and the planes that took them to these
0: ill-advised war zones. Henry? Uh I you know, I, I we we don't really know a whole lot yet about about what happened. I feel for this guy. I, I wonder what, what was in his mind that was such a so desperate as to do something like this. I. Uh, but yeah, no, it, it, it's it is it's you, you. Warfare is not a natural state for human beings to be in, and despite what we you know heard for, from Iona earlier that that they shouldn't be you know small children shouldn't be forced to live near drone strikes and to be able to find U.S. bomb parts among the remains of their home or the remains of a family member that got hit by the drone strike. Um, that's another thing uh, we're getting ready to cover is about uh, drone operators and seeing the horror you know in in 4kD or whatever it is I don't know how, however the awesome designation goes for these days for resolution um, but no it's it, it's it's just that gradual dehumanization
1: yep and you know what's great about this is President Trump is now, putting his military parade a ludicrous concept in the first place on veterans day. And all I keep thinking is with all the flaws in the VA, not to say the VA doesn't do great work. They do. But for all the flaws, which largely are determined by funding problems. Yes. Okay. For all of that, we're going to spend tens of millions of dollars on a charade, a parade, a party of militarism in Washington, D.C., now, it looks, it looks like there won't be tanks in the street, thankfully, but what a worse way to, to truly honor veterans. Let, let's take every dollar of that and triple it and match those funds and put them into the VA system. Let's make sure soldiers on disability have enough to live on. Let's not be stingy when it comes to our veterans because we have asked a lot of them for 17 years now. And there's a whole lot more veterans than anyone was planning for because of these post-9-11 wars. Bottom line, parade on Veterans Day. First of all, I want to see it renamed Armistice Day because Armistice Day is what it used to be called after World War I. When the countries of Europe, along with the United States, got together and said, this will be the war to end all wars. And we won't have to celebrate future wars because this will be the final one. Well, that hasn't panned out. And I'd like to see us spend more time trying to end wars than to celebrate them. And I think we're over
0: time. Uh, Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, we're over time. (laughs) So I I took bonus uh, 30 seconds, uh, listeners. So uh, for my penance, uh, you guys can pick the next rant topic, okay? Uh, You can pick something way out of my comfort zone. And don't worry, I'll still find a way to feel passionate about it. (laughs) All right. Uh, well, I think that was good too, Henry. I think that was a good, uh, a good little bonus material.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, here in the next, see in the next two weeks, we'll put out. I'll put out a couple short bonus episodes, and then of course we'll have uh, episode for Friday, and then at least another episode and a half with the interview. Great. So. Great. So you'll put one out Friday, and then we'll probably do two for Myona. Uh yeah yeah I'll put out I'll do like we did with the other ones I'll put out the first half on uh, just by itself and then um, part two we can attach that to another another regular episode.
1: Okay great. All right man well let me run if that's okay Um, I gotta pick up uh, my son from Boys and Girls Club and uh, then uh, he won't care what I've been doing uh, (laughs) because uh, that's the great thing about nine year olds. Me and you were talking about the most consequential things in the world. And uh, now I'm gonna pick him up. We're gonna talk about like superheroes and stuff. So it's yep. actually kind of refre- It's kind of refreshing, actually.
0: I I uh, do the same thing with my sons, and I really enjoy that too. It's yeah. so nice to all get right. away from all the bombs and everything. Yeah, hell yeah. Well,
1: I, got, I think we got about uh, an hour forty of usable material, so that's great, man. We're we're still ahead. Let's keep it
0: up. All right, sounds good. All, all right, man. To talk, you talk soon. Either. All right. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us today please come join the conversation at www.fortressonahill.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill or on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash Fortress on a Hill. We want to hear from our listeners about the topics and issues pertinent to America's military and veteran communities. And last but certainly not least, analyze your news and its sources very closely verify everything you read and remember that no one no matter how powerful are above criticism especially those with the power to send others into harm's way we'll see you next time